America was still a young nation struggling to maintain what she considered her rights and her honor and her legitimate independence. We were two years into the War of 1812, which by many was considered a second revolutionary war. We were fighting old, familiar enemies over things that we had thought we had already settled. Two years into the War of 1812, on the night of August 24th, 1814, British troops invaded Washington, D.C. and sacked it, burning down many buildings, including the White House. Two weeks later, the British Major General that led that attack was killed by a sniper when they had, had attempted to do the same thing in Baltimore, but were repelled. And it was from that battle that we got our national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner. But when they had burned down the White House, it was more than an act of war. It was a national humiliation. America has very particular opinions about the White House. And some presidents, maybe every president, has run afoul of America's opinion at some point of the White House. I don't know if you remember, it was before my time, but Jimmy Carter installed water heating uh, solar panels on the roof of the White House and people didn't like it. Uh, they saw it as gimmicky. They saw it as him using this sacred building as a vehicle to promote his own agenda. But the American people feel very clearly about it. That house belongs to us. We allow presidents to stay in it while they serve us, but it's not their house, it's our house. And uh, at, when uh, gay marriage was legalized in America, Obama famously lit up the White House with rainbow colors. And again, conservatives were offended because what they saw was him literally projecting uh, ethics on the White House that, and they considered it to be contrary to what the White House represented. And uh, Melania Trump redid the Rose Garden, same thing. How dare she do that? That belongs to us, not to you. And if we consider the White House and roll up the White House along with uh, the Washington Monument and um, the Lincoln Memorial, the Statue of Liberty, Mount Rushmore, and the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, roll them all into one, and the resulting pathos and sentiment and pride would only begin to approach the love that Israel held for their temple that sat on the mount in Jerusalem. The temple was quite large in Jesus' day. The, the Herod had built around it and improved it. It sat on a hill and he leveled, instead of leveling the top of the hill, he built up so he could flatten it. So he had more space to build on. So they have these giant retaining walls around it. Maybe we could put up some pictures of uh, the temple. It was the size of a modern football stadium all in all. You could stack two George Rogers Clark memorials on top of one another, and that would be comparable in height. Um, it had 12 gates around it, 14 feet high at uh, each pinnacle. The western wall 
uh, retaining wall was four and a half football fields long. At its highest point, the plateaued mountaintop stood 45 stories from the courtyard uh, retaining wall to the valley below. 45 stories from that retaining wall down below. They think that might have been, uh, some think that's where Satan took Jesus at the pinnacle. That would have been at 45 feet looking straight down, tempting him, seeking to tempt him to throw himself down. You have uh, the uh, columns in Solomon's porch, which stood, some think 27 feet tall, some think 41 feet tall, we're not sure, uh, but two, ro- two rows, column after column for 606 feet. Um, it, it was their national pride. It was the soul of their nation. And in John chapter 2, when Jesus, He had just he had just completed his first miracle ever. And then he goes into the temple and he clears it out for the first time. Money changers were in there. They were disrespecting the house. He clears them out. The Pharisees confront him immediately. They say, by what authority do you do this? And you remember what he said. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now that... One phrase that he said was the only phrase that stuck three years later when they were accusing him and trying him illegally in the night. They had, they were searching for a false witness, anything to condemn him. And man after man came forward. None of the, none of the false witnesses stuck. But finally two men came forward and they recalled that day from three years earlier. And they said, he said he could tear down this temple and build it up in three days. And the Pharisee said, what more do we need? That's, that's all we need to know. He disrespected the temple of God. So let's turn to that account in John chapter 2. I invite you to turn to John chapter 2 and verse 13 as a starting point this morning. And let's see what he actually said. John chapter 2, verse 13, says the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables and He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make My Father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume Me. So the Jews said to Him, what sign do you show us for doing these things. Now don't confuse this account with one that comes in the other Gospels comes towards the end of his ministry. In the last week of his ministry, he does this again and it's no wonder that by the end of the week he was dead. But they're two different accounts. He did it twice in his life. There's some details that are different. This is the only one where he made a whip of cords. He didn't do that later on, three years later. Also, three years later, uh, the Pharisees confronted him, but they waited till the next day, and his response was different here than it was the second time he did it. But they say to him in verse 18, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
The Jews then said, and they were scoffing, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, the parallelism and the shadow of the temple was with the body of Christ was more than just three days and it's gonna and he's gonna come back. There's there's a deep resonant truth in the temple and what it meant to the people of Israel and how all that that meant to the people of Israel was fulfilled in Christ and everything that the temple meant to Israel, Jesus means to you and I. So we're going to look at the temple and kind of evaluate first the role of the temple in their religion and then we'll double back again and reviewing each point very briefly at the end. Uh, only instead of looking at the temple, we'll look at Jesus' body, have that in mind, and we'll see what the relationship is to our faith. But we're going to lay the foundation of evaluating what the temple meant to them first. But then we're going to really, I'm, I'm going to, I want to invite you to be prayerful, and, and then when we get to the end and we seek to apply it to our own lives, that you're honest with yourself and you consider, am I, am I just viewing this sermon or am I a participant in this sermon? Am I seeking to hear from God? Is God speaking something to my life that no one else is aware of? Not not Ryan, not anyone sitting on this row with me, only God, the Holy Spirit, ministering this word to me specifically. That should be our goal every time we come to the word of God through a sermon. So first, let's just consider um, what the temple meant to the people of Israel. First of all, the temple was where worship was directed. The temple was where worship was directed. The temple was the hub of Jewish worship. We know, of course, that sacrifices was a primary uh, point of their worship. In Leviticus chapter 17, verses 2 through 4, it makes it very clear. Once the tabernacle had been built, in some of these passages, they, they, they blend over from tabernacle right into temple. But once it had been established, you were not permitted to sacrifice animals anywhere other than in the temple. In fact, in Leviticus 17, it says that blood guilt shall be imputed upon the man that sacrifices an animal elsewhere other than the temple. He shall be cut off from his people. And this is why the, the, the destruction of the temple was such a tragedy to Israel because all of a sudden they had no place to worship and more than that. But their worship was directed there through sacrifices, but also an important and not to be overlooked aspect of worship that took place in the temple was not just sacrifices, but singing as well. Singing was a critical part of Jewish worship, and it took place at the temple. Of course, we know about the Psalms, but all that happened at the worship or at the temple. Uh, David organized um, a whole system of singers and instrumentalists to worship at the temple and to lead others into worship. Once the Ark of the Covenant found its final resting place in the temple, and the temple was dedicated. Uh, by his son Solomon and built by his son Solomon. He had it all in place so the worshipers would um, lead people in worship. In Second Chronicles chapter 5, verses 6 through 12, the temple is dedicated. And it says there was too many sheep and oxen sacrificed that could even be counted. And all the Levitical singers 
with cymbals and harps and lyres. 120 trumpeters all led the nation in worship. In 1 Chronicles chapter 23, 1-6, David is organizing the 38,000 Levites, the tribe of Levi. Their job is to tend to the temple. And he organized all 38,000 of them. I think it was men 30 and over. And he divided them into groups to those that would tend to the house. That means did the sacrifices. And then there were those that were judges. And then there was 4,000 gatekeepers. They were the singers that would sing as people would come up. And additionally, there was 4,000 instrumentalists. So David organized all of that. Don't Just don't overlook the fact that singing was a huge part of their worship, and which is why it's a huge part of our worship as well. It's not time filler in the sermon. It's not here to get our hearts ready to receive a message. It is the heart of our worship. Every bit as much as reading the Word of God is a part of our worship, singing to God is a part of our worship. Um, And this is also why there was the Samaritan controversy that we see in John chapter 4 and verse 20, where she says, you guys worship on that mountain, but we worship on this mountain. The Samaritans weren't welcome in Israel. And so there was a debate. Where do we worship God? The temple was where worship was directed. And not only that, we also see that the temple was where teaching was received. Not only was it a place of worship, but it was a place of teaching. It was a place of teaching. Think about it. We have many examples. We have to look no further than the Gospels themselves to observe this truth. Looking in Jesus' life, we see a lot of teaching takes place in the temple. Think about when Jesus was a little boy and his parents had gone up to Jerusalem. They were on their way back and they had lost him and they doubled back. Where did they find him? Do you remember? According to Luke chapter 2 and verse 46, it says, He was sitting among the teachers in the temple. And he was questioning and being questioned and mystifying all them because of his wisdom and his knowledge. But the key is, the teachers were located in the temple. In Mark chapter 12 and verse 41, he is in what we uh, believe is the women's court. There was different courts where Gentiles were only allowed so far in, and then women could go in further, and then certain Jews could go in even further. And Jesus, it appears, went to many different places in the temple to teach. But here in uh, Mark chapter 12 and verse 41, first it says, In his teaching he said, Beware the scribes who like to walk and talk and, and, and uh, walk around in a long robe. So it says, in his teaching. So he's teaching. And it continues. It says, he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money in the offering box. That's in the temple. And then later on it says, he came out of the temple and be- said to his disciples. So his teaching took place in the temple. We also know from John chapter 10 and verse 23 that he was walking. It was winter. And it says that he was in the long colonnade of Solomon's porch teaching there. But the best proof is from Matthew chapter 26 and verse 55 when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and they come in and they begin to arrest him. Do you remember Christ's response? He says, what are you treating me like a criminal for? Coming in with clubs and torches. Was I not in the temple day after day teaching and you never took me then? Why now in, the, in darkness do you take me? So by his own testimony, day by day, Jesus was in the temple teaching. 
So the temple was where the worship was directed. The temple was where teaching was received. But there's more. The temple was where atonement was offered. Not just worship, not just singing, not just teaching, but actual atonement. If you wanted to take action to correct previous wrongdoing, there was only one place for a Jew to go. Only one place to go where satisfaction could be offered for your sins and expiation could be received. That one place was the temple. And Jews, there was three pilgrimages a year where Jews from all over the world would come to Jerusalem. One of those was the Passover. And that was the most populated time in Jerusalem. People came from all over the world having saved their funds all year long, but they had to get there because they had to at least once a year make atonement for their sins and they couldn't do it anywhere but in the temple. And you think about the term Passover. That even gives us a good description of what they were doing when they came to the temple. They were putting themselves in the same place as the children of Israel when they first left Egypt. And in a sense they were saying, I know that I have sinned, but I want uh, that judgment to pass over me in the same way that the angel of death passed over the faithful in Israel, uh, the faithful Israelites in, in uh, Egypt. And, and so they would go for atonement. There's two more, um, purposes of the temple valued in the Israelites' life. Fourthly, the temple was where glory was displayed. The temple was where glory was displayed. In 1 Kings chapter 8, if you're taking notes, 1 Kings chapter 8, they're bringing the ark into the temple for the first time. The temple has been completed. And it says, when the priests came out of the holy place, so they carried it into the holy place. It says, when they came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So after they had erected it, the glory wasn't there. But when they brought the Ark of the Covenant in, then the glory filled the place. And it was so great it drove the priests out. So it, it was a, a visual manifestation of the glory of God. But what's more than that, and fifthly, we see more than just the glory of God being seen, the temple was where the presence of God was found. That was so critical to Israel. They believed in it. They counted on it. They were proud of it. For where His glory is, there His presence is. Where His presence is, there His holiness is. And what they failed to realize, where His holiness is, there is danger to the sinner. This they failed to understand about the presence of God. In fact, in Jeremiah and Ezekiel's day, Jeremiah and Ezekiel were prophesying, pending judgment on Israel, lest they repent. And if you don't repent, God is going to come and He's going to destroy this place. And they would howl them down. They would chant over and over again, this is where the temple of God is. This is where the temple of God is. In their mind, as long as the temple was there, God was there. There's no way God would leave the temple. So as long as the temple was there, they were safe. 
They didn't realize that their sins were threatening the presence of God. They view God as almost caged in this temple. And hey, we're safe as long as God is there. God's not going to leave. So we're safe. The nation's safe. You can get out of here, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, with your warnings. But they didn't understand that the divine presence wouldn't abide the sin that they were experiencing. In fact, in uh, Ezekiel chapter 43, let me read that for you. Ezekiel chapter 43 says, this is Ezekiel having a vision from God, being transported in the Spirit. He says, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the east and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory and the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city and just like the vision that I had seen by the Chebar Canal and I fell on my face. The vision he's referring to is when he saw the glory of the Lord departing from the temple. And it terrified him. Now he sees the glory coming back. And as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit of the Lord lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And while the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. So the glory of the Lord's in the temple. And then he heard coming out of the temple. He said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. That's an interesting way to say it. God's saying, I, I am here. It's not just an expression of my glory. I'm here. This is where the soles of my feet are. This is where I abide. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor the kings by their whoring and by their dead bodies of the kings at their high places by the setting of the threshold by my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorposts with only a wall between me and them. They have defiled my holy name by the abominations that they have committed. So I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their whoring and their dead bodies of their kings far from me, and I will dwell in their midst forever. The point of all of this, though, is that where the divine presence is, sin is not tolerated. In fact, the Jews still believed all that's left of that temple is not even a wall of the temple, but a retaining wall that held up the earth that the temple was upon, the Western Wall, you know it as the Wailing Wall. You've seen pictures of the Wailing Wall. That's all that's left. And Israel to this day believes that God's presence is in that wall, on that wall. I think we have an image of one of the signs that they have um, on the uh, on the wall. And if you can't you can't read that, it's, it's Hebrew on top, English on bottom. But it basically says, "This is where God abides." So dress modestly as you approach it. There's another sign that I couldn't find a picture of. Or I couldn't get a picture. I couldn't save it off the internet. I don't know how. But anyway, it said this. It said that this wall, this temple was the focal point of creation. The sign on that wall says it's the center of the mount that holds the foundation stone of the world. They believe that in the center of the temple mount was a stone that was like the cornerstone 
of the world when it was created. And they believed that the Ark of the Covenant was set on top of that stone. But then they end with this. They say, the divine presence never leaves the western wall. That's what they believe. Scripture tells us the divine presence did leave the western wall. And the Jews in Christ's day didn't get it either. Can I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 12? Turn to Matthew chapter 12. And we see Christ instructing them again in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to do, to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? So he gives an example of the law apparently being broken, but David being a type of Christ, the necessity being what it was, it was the need and the person was greater than the commandment given. Verse 5, Or have you not read about in the law, in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? The priests work on the Sabbath. So why, why is that allowed? Well, their duty is more important than the law. And then Jesus says this critical statement. In verse 6, he says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is saying, I'm here. My glory far exceeds the glory of the temple. My purpose far exceeds the purpose of the temple. My being is the fulfillment of everything the temple was a shadow of. He says, in this place is one greater than the temple. And I believe this is a fulfillment of the Haggai 2.9 prophecy where Haggai prophesied and said, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. So let's, let's not be like the unbelieving, Christ-rejecting Jews, either in His day or in our day or in Ezekiel and Jeremiah's day, Let's be careful as we approach this living temple, Jesus Christ, that we don't misplace our devotion. And so, for the rest of the sermon, I have, point for point, five growth assessment questions that I encourage you to contemplate and think about. And if one of them really sticks in your mind, that's the one that maybe you need to think about the most. But first of all, considering that Jesus is the new hub of worship, here's a question you can ask yourself. Am I worshiping a person when I sing on Sunday morning? Am I worshiping a person when I sing? I know that we are worshiping, but that's not the question I want you to ask. What you need to ask is, am I worshiping a person when I sing? Am I really worshiping? Not just expressing ideas that I believe in, but am I worshiping Jesus? Am I doing that when I sing? What goes on when this congregation is singing? I would have to admit, there's probably some here 
whose minds are wandering when everyone else is singing. I imagine there's people that don't want to open their mouths because they can't sing very well. Or they're embarrassed for some reason. They feel silly when they sing. Maybe you never sing anywhere else. This is the only place you're expected to sing and it's just too different for you to do it. Maybe your mind is going through the different responsibilities you have in the day. Maybe you're looking ahead in the bulletin and what's coming up or maybe what the sermon is going to be about. But if we're coming to Christ as the temple of our faith, we come and we worship Him as a person. And I just wonder if you could ask yourself, am I worshiping a person when I sing? Not only considering that Jesus is the new hub of worship, but also knowing that this new temple is now the received source of our instruction. The second question you could ask yourself, am I seeking Jesus in God's Word? That was the sentence where you went to get biblical instruction. Are you seeking Jesus out in the same way that those who wanted to know more truth would go to the temple? Do you go to Jesus in the same way? Our theme verse for VBS this week. So if your kid was there, they probably have it memorized. Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. It would be a shame if those haunting words that probably rung in Phelps' ears would ring in ours one day. In John 14, 9, Jesus poignantly asks Philip, have you been with me so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Could God say the same thing about you? Maybe you've been in the church since you were a child, but how much of Jesus do you know from this book? Pastors probably preach, preach nothing more than the importance of going to the Word of God for yourself. And people think, oh, it's overkill. Why do you keep going back to that? I remember watching uh, an interview of a Super Bowl winning coach where he was being interviewed on the field during practice because he was so successful. And in the middle of the live interview, he blows up and runs sideways and he starts yelling at one of his players who was fundamentally coming off the line wrong. He didn't care about the celebrity. He didn't care about the fame. He was concerned that his lineman was shifting instead of falling backwards or whatever it might be. He knew if he was going to be a successful coach, his players had to stick with the absolute rock bottom fundamentals. They can't be forgotten. And that's why pastors preach your responsibility to study the Word of God for yourself. The sermons can't cut it. You have to go to Scripture for yourself. And if you don't know what you're doing, you know what? If you have God's Spirit inside you, if you're just faithful, just keep going to the Word day in, day out. He will build precept upon precept, concept upon concept, and you will get a working, spiritual, practical vocabulary. But it's not going to happen if you only come to the Word once a week. Are you seeking Jesus in God's Word? And now that there is no other place for atonement than in Christ, the third question you can ask yourself is, am I trusting in Christ's provision? Now, everyone here would say, yes, yes I am. I'm, I'm trusting in Christ's provision. But let me, let me offer you some alternatives that may be um, a path that you find yourself wandering down time and again after you sin. What are certain alternate responses? After we've sinned, we feel convicted for our sin, 
And maybe you do this instead of trusting in Christ's provision. Maybe you double down on certain points of obedience and you really work hard at it so that you feel more righteous. That's not trusting Christ's provision. Maybe you do this instead. Maybe you feel real guilty for a good long time and you try to pay for your offense yourself by just feeling guilty for long enough. That's not trusting in Christ's atonement. Maybe you say the right words and then you don't think twice about it. Ah, Lord, forgive me. And then that's it. You forget about it. You move on. I would argue that even that is not genuinely trusting in Christ's provision. Here's what I would suggest. Maybe something like this. You rest in Christ's finished work Grieve for the sin that you committed, but in your confession of that sin, you let the depth of your sin weigh out the value of His sacrifice and you leave rejoicing that you've been forgiven. But also committed to not doing that again. It's not a get-out-of-free-jail card. The atonement that Christ offered for us came at such a cost. We dare not continue in sin unchecked. Am I trusting in Christ's provision? Fourthly, viewing the glory of God expressed in Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus was the exact imprint of the nature and the glory of God. You can ask yourself, am I moved by glory? Is it something I seek for? Is it something I look after? You know, we can uh, view a sunset or a star-filled sky, and those are more accessible outlets of glory, but they lack the complex depth of beauty that is found only in Jesus if you have the patience to seek Him out. We know what it's like to be impressed with uh, the biggest mountain we've ever seen. That's easy to look at it and be blown away. But to seek after Christ and say, okay, Everything in nature is expressing, reflecting something about the nature of God. I'm not going to be satisfied with the superficial. I want to dive deeper. I want to be blown away by who Christ is. I want to know who He is and let that transform me. Maybe instead of reaching for uh, entertainment, you be more decisive and purposeful and you reach to discover meaning in Christ. It's the difference between distraction and discovery. One is easy. One of them, your brain can be in neutral and you can do it. The other one takes discipline. Day in, day out. Seeking the glory of Christ. Finally, learning from the mistake that the people in Jeremiah and Ezra's audience had made. Do I take His presence lightly? Do I take the presence of Christ lightly. Just as lightly as Ezra's audience did when they sinned just one wall away from the glory and presence of God and they they thought they would be safe. Have we forgotten that where His glory is, there His presence is. And where His presence is, there His holiness is. And where His holiness is, there is a danger to those who continue in sin. Does my sin still destroy me? That's another way of saying it. If not, then I would say that it's time for you to fast and weep, according to the book of James, and pray that God might return a tenderness to your soul 
and restore in your heart a sensitivity to sin because God is holy and he is present. He is present. Thank you.